take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me once again to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. As we continue in our series through the entire book of Deuteronomy, we are right now in the Ten Commandments, looking at one commandment each week, and this week we are looking at the second commandment. Once again, the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Let's hear now the word of our God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, the Israelites must have been a strange bunch at least in the eyes of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. They must have appeared to be a very peculiar people with all of the rules that they followed. They didn't eat pork. You remember they had all of those laws about clean and unclean foods. They circumcised their sons. They rested on the seventh day every week, calling that day a Sabbath to the Lord. There were a lot of things that made the Israelites different from the surrounding nations. In stark contrast to their neighbors who served a bunch of gods, the people of Israel were devoted to just one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of heaven and earth. And that's not all. Perhaps the strangest thing is that they worshipped a God who simply refused to be reduced to an image like the other gods of all the other nations. I think we need to appreciate that. This was, this was downright unheard of because in the ancient world, idols were everywhere. Carved images were ubiquitous. Everywhere you looked, you could find a, a, a statue or an image of some god. Just think about when the apostle Paul traveled, traveled to the city of Athens, for example, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts uh, tells us that uh, Paul got there and something got his attention. But first it's worth remembering that uh, Athens, like Boston or Oxford today, was known as a kind of intellectual center, respected for its history and its high culture. But what got under Paul's skin when he arrived in Athens? Luke tells us, It was that the city was full of idols. So much so that he even saw a statue to an unknown God just to cover all of their bases. There were idols everywhere. So the thought of an imageless deity was simply unheard of except for the incomparable God of Israel. And so this morning I'd like us to explore this peculiar prohibition 
in the second commandment, which strictly forbids the manufacturing of images for worship. And I want to do so in three parts. Think about the rule itself, then the warning and promise attached to the rule, and then we'll think about the reason for the rule. So let's begin with the rule itself. We saw last time that the first commandment forbids other gods before the face of God, the only true God. And the second commandment is related, but it goes a step further. It essentially forbids worshiping the right God the wrong way and requires serving God the way that he reveals. See, worshiping, thinking that they were worshiping the the right God the wrong way is precisely what the Israelites did. And Passage like Exodus chapter 32, when Moses has been up on the mountain a little longer than the people wanted, and they were growing impatient. And so Moses' brother Aaron took matters into his own hands, and he fashioned a golden calf. And what we need to notice is that he, he, he didn't simply fashion a golden calf to some other god. He identified the golden calf with the Lord himself. That's something that often gets overlooked. It's not just that he made a golden calf. It's that he identified that image with the Lord who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. He built an altar before that image and identified it as the Lord, proclaiming, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. Exodus 32, verse 5. Well, this is precisely what is prohibited by the second commandment. Again, it's closely related to the first, but it's also distinct because it goes a step further. It says the one God must be worshipped and served on his own terms, his own way. Negatively, then, it it forbids what we could call, what is called in the New Testament, self-willed worship. Worshipping God by our own imagination, according to our own desires, however we see fit. So take a look again at verses 8 and 9. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. See what the Lord is saying. In a world filled with idols, God is saying, don't think that you can serve me by serving an image. When you bow down and serve them, it's not me that you're serving. Just think about what it would feel like to, to find your spouse adoring, ooing and awing over, over a photo. Right? You walk into the room and you see them adoring this image of someone and when you ask them what they are doing, they, they say to you, oh, oh honey, it's you. It's you. And you, and you go over and you look at it and you say, well, first of all, this is just, this is a picture. It's just a photo. And you look closer at the picture, you realize, that's, that's not even me. <laughs> that's not what I look like. And they say, no, no, no. Honey, it's you I'm adoring. Would you be okay with that? I don't think so. But that's exactly what we do whenever we worship God in any other way than he has revealed himself and his word. We are like a man claiming to adore his wife while adoring the image of another woman. 
And God looks at that kind of worship and says, I, I, don't, I don't care what you think you're doing. You're not worshiping me when you do that. You're not serving me. Because God chooses how he reveals himself and how we serve him. We don't, we don't get to fashion God in the image of whatever we prefer, whatever we want. He chooses how he is known and worshipped and As we're going to see, he is very, very jealous about this. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is is essential to our understanding of the second commandment. uh, It really is an application of the second commandment. Remember there, the people were, were warned against manufacturing images. Moses reminded them that God chose to reveal himself audibly, not visibly, by word. Not not by sight. So God did not give them a statue to see. He gave them a word to hear. Moses said to them, God spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. He spoke to them. That's how he revealed himself to his people. That's how he was present to them. By speaking his word to them. And so Moses says, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. That's why Moses goes on to say, be careful therefore. Watch yourselves so that you don't act corruptly by making an idol for yourselves. That's the second commandment at work in in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It forbids worship by human ingenuity and confirms that the Lord alone decides how he is known And how we are to serve him. And so self-willed efforts to honor God. Worshiping God according to our own imagination. Is strictly forbidden by the second commandment. No matter how good our intentions may be. Because the way of worship is given. Not made. And this is why the focus of the church in its gathered worship is centered on hearing God's word and responding to it. Hearing God's word read and proclaimed and responding to it in prayer and praise because this is how God reveals himself to us and this is how God makes himself available to us. God wants to be worshipped not according to anything you can see in creation or human imagination, but according to divine revelation. That's what the second commandment is all about. So this is the rule. You can't reduce God to anything in creation to serve him because that's not him. He can't be contained by an image. And positively, the commandment tells us that God gets to decide how he is known and how he is served. The only way to worship God is to worship God God's way. But you see, there's the rub for us today. Because we want to do it our own way sometimes, don't we? we? We want a God we can contain. We want a God we can manage. And that is essentially what idolatry is. It is fashioning a God we can manipulate. And so instead of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, we remake God until he is safely brought under our control. 
And this was in part why people made images. We need to understand this. People of the ancient world did not believe that the gods actually lived in their idols, but they did think that idols gave them a kind of spiritual connection to those deities and gave them a kind of control over their gods. And so much contemporary, if we think about it, much contemporary spirituality seeks to do the very same thing. We want a God adaptable to our purposes, our desires, our wants. We want to, if I do this, then God does this for me kind of deity. But the second commandment reminds us that God is absolutely free. He will not be contained or assigned or managed by anyone for any purpose. That's why God demands that we listen to him. That we trust and obey him rather than trying to use him. And so we can violate the second commandment when we think we can worship God however we please. I think this is, this is a real challenge today, I think. This is a real challenge in a consumer society where everything is packaged as a commodity for our consumption including the church and its worship. Just ask yourself this. What is, what is the dominant question when we think about what should the church's worship be like? Is the primary concern, I want, I want a church that is seeking to listen to and submit to God's word, or do I want a church that worships my way, according to my preferences, that offers all of the ministries that I think are important. I think it becomes pretty clear that this idea of church shopping has really taken over our thinking today. The second commandment forbids worshiping God by our own imagination, and it requires us to know and serve God by his word alone. He makes himself known and tells us how we can worship and, and serve him. So in, in, our own, in our own tradition, this is what's been known as the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship simply means that the acceptable way of worshiping God is established by God himself in his word. The regulative principle of worship simply says, let's worship God the way that he wants to be worshipped. Of course, that doesn't mean rigid uniformity. There will always be diversity, but a healthy diversity united by the same commitment to serving God according to divine revelation, not human imagination. And you know, as time goes on, I'll speak personally for a moment. I, I didn't grow up in a church that had a concept of the regulative principle, as I've grown older, I've just come to appreciate it more and more. Some, some people find it to be overly restrictive, but at its heart is freedom, right? Freedom from cultural captivity, freedom from gimmicks and human imagination, freedom from the latest trend in evangelicalism, freedom from Human preferences, freedom from weekly novelties, the regulative principle says the determining factor 
for our worship is not personal preferences or cultural accommodation or pragmatism or mindless traditionalism. The determining factor is what God tells us to do in his word. And that's why when we come together, you you have a very simple service of listening to God's word, read and preached, and responding to that word in prayer and praise, because this is what God calls us to do. Now, after giving the rule, God attaches a warning and a promise. See, the second commandment, it not only forbids self-willed worship, It also seeks to dissuade us from idolatry by warning us of God's judgment and assuring us of God's steadfast love. So take a look again at the warning first in verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, what do you make of that? What are we supposed to make of this warning of God visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation? This isn't about generational curses. Nor nor do I think it's saying that a child who trusts and follows God is going to be judged for the sins of his wicked father or grandfather. That's a common misunderstanding, which even the scriptures seek to correct. For example, Ezekiel chapter 18 Verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So God does not say to someone who's seeking to trust and and follow after Jesus, tough break, kiddo, your dad was a bad dude, so I'm really going to let you have it. that's, That's not what's being communicated here. The warning is about God's judgment on those who walk in the sinful ways of their forefathers. Look at the verse very carefully. God says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The children share in the judgment because they share in their father's sin. They imitate what they inherit. That's the idea here. We we shouldn't be surprised then when coming generations imitate Our idolatry, it's a sobering warning that our sin isn't just about us. We don't sin in a vacuum. Our our, our sin can have an impact on our children and our grandchildren and even our great-grandchildren. It's a sobering warning. And maybe, maybe it leaves you feeling, therefore, that you're in a you're in a hopeless position. Perhaps you know what it's like to inherit the worthless ways of previous generations. But would you please notice the astonishing asymmetry here between the judgment that's spoken of and the promised steadfast love in verse 10. Judgment to three or four generations of those who hate me, but steadfast love, as I think it can be translated to a thousand generations. Here we see that God intends to be magnified In his mercy, a thousand generations. How long is that? We're not meant to understand this literally to a thousand generations, but across the ages. That's the point here. 
This is the promise that God has been keeping down through history from one generation to another generation as one generation commends the works of the Lord to another. He has shown his steadfast love throughout all generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. Unless we think that that language of those who love him and keep his commandments is an endorsement of some kind of works righteousness. Remember Jesus who said, apart from me, you can, you can do nothing. You, you cannot bear the fruit of obedience apart from abiding in me, apart from finding life in me and me alone. But it's that same Jesus who also says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the obedience of love that flows from knowing that you were loved first. And so the rule and the warning and promise attached. But now I want us to think about the reason for the rule. The reason for the rule is cited there in verse 9. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealousy is the reason cited for this rule. And I think we can understand, think about God's jealousy here in two ways, which are ultimately linked, but we need to, we'll consider them uh, one by one here. Number one is God is jealous for his bride. And number two, God is jealous for his own glory. So let's think about the first. This Description of the Lord as a jealous God implicitly conveys an important lesson about the nature of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. This word jealousy in scripture, it is freighted with meaning. It's not talking about some kind of petty envy. That's, that's not the idea here. When God and his people entered into a covenant, we need to remember when they entered into a covenant at Mount Sinai, they entered into the bonds of marriage. So that they are husband and wife. And the marital nature of this covenant, which is implicitly conveyed in the language of jealousy in verse 9, becomes much more explicit and direct as the storyline of Scripture unfolds. Because the people of Israel proved to be unfaithful to their husband. And this sin is repeatedly described in terms of spiritual adultery. And so God raises up prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea to convict Israel of her idolatry, which is tantamount to adultery. Think about Hosea. He even, he even called Hosea to serve as a living picture of this deeper spiritual reality by commanding him to take to himself a wife of whoredom and to have children of whoredom. For the people committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord for other gods. And this theme, it comes up again and again. Israel was an unfaithful wife claiming to love the Lord while she chased after, after other gods. Bowing down to images. And this aroused the Lord's jealousy. Because he loves his people. And he will not tolerate seeing her in the arms of another man. And what, what would it say about God if he entered into a marriage covenant with his people. And when they were unfaithful, God simply shrugged and said, oh well, that's too bad. 
Christopher Wright in his commentary on Deuteronomy says that a God who is not jealous for the reciprocal commitment of his people would be as contemptible as a husband who doesn't give a rip seeing his wife in the arms of another man. I may have paraphrased that last part a little bit, but that's what Christopher Wright says, and I think he's right on. But you see, part of our problem with this profound covenant reality is is again, that we've come to regard religion like everything else as a matter uh, of consumer choice. But you see, the only God, the one God, makes necessarily exclusive claims on us. And he has, he has a right to monopolize our love. And if we bristle at the idea of God's jealous love, the zeal of his love for his people then that's because we live in a culture that no longer understands the deep meaning of marriage. The exclusive commitment called for and how it was from the beginning designed to ultimately point to this deeper covenantal relationship between God and his people. And so God is jealous for his bride. That's one reason for this rule. But there's another sense in which I think we can think about God's jealousy here. God is jealous for his own glory. And what is God's glory? God's glory is his his character made visible. God's glory is his, his attributes set on display. And he is jealous to reserve his right to display his glory in his own way. We we need to trace the implications of the second commandment here through the scriptures and think theologically together for a few minutes. So follow with me, okay? The second commandment reminds us that God gets to determine how he is revealed and God has determined to reveal himself by his word. God has determined to reveal himself through his word. And that word is personal. It was the Lord himself who spoke out of the midst of the fire, giving these ten words. And we need to think this through. God reveals himself through his word. That word is personal. In fact, that word is a divine person. John says as much. In the prologue of his gospel, do you remember how John begins the gospel of John? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John begins at the beginning, and he is teaching us how to read Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God the Father created everything through his Word, through the word. That's what's being described in Genesis 1 when we read again and again. God said, and God said, and God said. That's God the Father making all things through the word who was with God and who was God from the beginning. And this is the pattern that we find, though, running through history. God reveals himself and works his will through his word and by the Holy Spirit. But then John says something truly astounding. Okay, A little bit later in his prologue, the word is not just divine speech. The word is not just divine rationality. The word 
is a divine person. It is the word who, John 1.14, took flesh and dwelt among us. And we, John says, we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, okay, connect those initial dots. The Word is the Son of God who took flesh. And John says, we beheld its glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, connect all of that with our New Testament reading this morning, where Paul identifies Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God. The Son of God who took flesh, who became a man, is the image, not a image, but the image of God. As Hebrews puts it, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To see him is to see the glory of God. He perfectly represents what God is like because he is God. He is the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, setting on display the glorious character of God. It's one of the reasons why in the Gospel of John, John actually describes the crucifixion of Jesus, right? The ultimate climax of his humiliation. John describes that as Jesus' glorification, as he's lifted up. Why? How is, how is God being glorified in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Because it is the ultimate expression of the love of God for sinners. The character of God is being made visible in the image of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, let's put all this together here. Think about it in this way. The word who spoke at Sinai is the word who took flesh, perfectly representing God, perfectly imaging God, showing forth his glory as the image of the invisible God. It is that voice that speaks from Sinai saying, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. What is the ultimate reason for this rule? It is that none but the Son of God in our flesh can image God. Not a statue, not a carved image, not a piece of art, not a picture, not a film. As the commandment says, nothing in all creation. Because nothing in all creation can capture the glory of God, which is the character of God made visible. Nothing can image forth the glorious character of God except the one who is himself very God of very God. And so in the second commandment, what what is God doing? I think one way to think about it is God is reserving the right, his right, to image himself. In the second commandment, God is reserving the right to image himself, and he has determined to do so not by carved images or the works of human imagination, but by his Son, who is the image of God. And isn't it striking, I know I've said this to you, I think when we were back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, but I'll say it again, isn't it striking that in the most visually stunning moment of Jesus' earthly ministry during his transfiguration, when his face shone like the sun, 
Peter, James, and, and John beheld his glory. And the Father, speaking from heaven, says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Not look at him. Listen to him. Even after the incarnation, God commands us to listen to his Son. This is how God continues to make himself known to us by his Son declaring his word to us in the power of the Spirit. And, and when we listen in faith, when we listen in faith, what is God doing? You know, it's incredible to connect all of this together. What God is doing is he is renewing his image in us. That's what God is doing through the ministry of his word. He is conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that more and more we become living, breathing, walking, talking images of God. You remember in the beginning God created human beings after his own image and likeness. We were made to be a creaturely analogy. We were made to be a reflection of God. We were made to be mirrors reflecting something beyond ourselves and we can't help it. It's what we are. All the way down, we are image bearers, as we sang earlier from Psalm 115. We become like what we worship. We reflect what we worship. Those who make idols become like them, Psalm 115 says. But you see, this is where the good news of the gospel comes in and says, God has redeemed us. He has rescued us from serving vain idols to serve the living and true God. And as we serve him, by his grace, we become like him. And we need to see this in, in the context of the big picture, the big plan. This was God's plan all along to glorify his son by making him the firstborn among many brothers who bear the family likeness. That's so why I read in Romans chapter 8, for as Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is what God is about through the gospel, conforming us to the image of Jesus. And that bears ethical content, brothers and sisters. He's shaping our character. He's shaping our thinking. He's shaping our desires. He's shaping our habits so that his character is seen in us. And if we trace this out to its final implications, let's remember, let's remember that we will see God one day. We will see God one day. We will one day see Jesus as he is. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, when he appears and we see him as he is, we will be like him. The sight of the image of God will transform us as creaturely images of God. As Paul says, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. And that means this is our Christian hope. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea because God will dwell there in our midst and because the new heavens and the new earth will be filled 
with lots and lots of people conformed to the image of God's beloved Son. And it will all be to the praise of his glorious grace. That is our future. And so we don't need an image to know or serve God. It's not how God wants us to know him. We already have the perfect representation of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who we see now by faith in the hearing of the word of Christ. And one day we will see him with our own eyes. And so for now, we are called to listen to him, to listen to him and live, to cling to him by faith because he is our life and to abide in his steadfast love and to keep his commandments. And so friends, as we wrap up here, let's hear this closing exhortation to not try to make God in our own image. Instead, let's listen to Christ so that by hearing in faith, we might be conformed to his image so that he would be glorified in us. Let's pray together. Lord, would you please write your law on our hearts and conform us to the image of Jesus, enable us to worship you through him. In spirit and in truth, keep us from idols, we ask. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.